0: About faith in the context of a letter to the Hebrews. And the, the, the message titled this morning in your outline is Faith Strengthened by Warnings. And this book has been unique, and I want to hold it up to us with this unique element to it. Remember, this book is inspired by God, it contains elements that are not there by accident, they're, they're not, there's not extra stuff in this book. There's nothing that we can read through the book and say, well, there's an extra thought, but we don't really need that. These are the main things that we want to take from this. Every word inspired by God, every element of it strategically put together. And as we said, as we walk through this book, this book is intended to bolster faith. It's a faith nudger, if you will. Wherever your faith is found, this book is attempting to nudge it further along. And so today what we're going to find is is yet another one of these unique dynamics that's in this letter of how God sees fit to nudge our faith along. If I'm needing to be encouraged, if I'm discouraged in my walk right now, if if I'm sluggish, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, if I'm sagging in my faith, my ambition for the glory of God is lacking, and I'm needing to be encouraged along in that, if I'm needing a lift personally in the things that God's called me to be and to do as a person, Uh, If we went in again to the Barnes and Nobles and shopped around for some help in that category, we probably wouldn't find the advice we're finding here. And that says something to us about we as human beings trying to solve our own problems. The things that we have on our own bookshelves sometimes are not what we really need when it comes to solving life's problems. Who would have thought that the the way to put on a smile... The way to get some joy going in our lives would be to study the atonement. To make the person and the work of Christ a major feature in our lives when we're facing depression and being disconnected from others in the way in which we're walking. Well, who would have thought today as we start to read these passages that the way to connect with overcoming in our lives would have been to be warned. Would be to have God get in our face and warn us as a means of helping our faith to go to the next level and be rescued from where we are. Now today, if you'll open up to Hebrews chapter 3, I've got to tell you, this is not the sense of humor of God, it's just the fact that God is who He is, that we bump into elements in the Bible that don't seem to get along with each other. Have you encountered that? You read passages in one part of the Bible and then you read another passage and you say, Oh, wait a minute. How do these two things fit hand in hand? Now, hold on to some thought as we get into these passages, because, you know, what I don't ever want us to become, I, I think it's the engineering element in me as a background that, but I think it's the right way to look at the Bible. When you read aspects of the Bible and you find out this verse says this, that's what this, preach that verse, brother. Well, whatever you're preaching about that verse needs to make sense when you stick the rest of the Bible alongside of it. So you can't just take your pet idea that you found in this one passage and say, okay, uh uh-huh, well tell me about that based on this passage. Whatever your view is, it needs to be based on what this says, not on what this says. And so we come to these passages today and they're going to bring a different dimension to us of who God is than what we've been looking at the last couple of weeks. We looked at a covenant God two weeks ago. God is a covenant God. The reason why any of us can be here today expecting that God is going to do something in our life is more than just, well, God is love and God is good and so he'll, therefore He'll do something good for me. No, not everybody can say that and it wouldn't be accurate biblically. God is love and He is good. But the reason why He's going to be involved in your life tomorrow is because He's going to keep His covenant with you. He's going to keep His promises with you. He will do that. Last week, if you were here for our singles weekend, I spent some time on Sunday in the Sunday service preaching on the sovereignty of God for singles and applying that uniquely to where singles find themselves in this scheme of God sovereignly moving human history along in a way that is fail-proof. God's purposes cannot fail. And now today, we're going to find this warning that finds itself in the lap of human responsibility. And so make sure that your theology has left room for all of these things to have to be wrestled with. Let's read this passage together. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear His voice, do not lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence Firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Right? What is this, who is this passage dealing with? And it's this interesting dynamic of God spurring us on to greater faith by issuing a warning based on what somebody else didn't do. Who who is this someone else? Verse 16. For who are those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were, united. They were not united by faith with those who listened. Now, interesting thing that's happening here. This book is about considering Christ, setting our focus and attention on Him. That's what this book is about. It's about strengthening faith. But we cannot be left out of that equation. This cannot be something that, sure, I believe some things that are so outside of me and don't involve me. It's just, it's just about that. Well, how does it become real for me? How does this book begin to benefit me? And there's a statement in here that, that it's possible for all the benefit of Christ to not benefit you. It's possible. Because it exists does not mean it exists for you. Just because it does exist. And there's a warning here that puts us in the crosshairs. This warning's not a warning for God. It's not a warning for God's sovereignty that somehow... You know, the the battery pack could run out on your sovereignty, God. Your covenant could fail God. This is not God being warned. This is us being warned. And there are significant warnings in this. And the backdrop here in verse 12, we turn a little corner here. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you. The writer highlights something that's happened in the past. And he highlights that it's Israel and they're coming out of Egypt. And you remember this story? Here's a group that's been in bondage and affliction over 400 years and they're going to come out of that with this incredible bang. They're going to start with an incredible amount of noise. There's a ticker tape parade. They're leaving Egypt. God's doing amazing things in their midst. They're the people of God. There's a rally crying. They've got more wealth in their pockets than they have ever could have imagined as they leave Egypt. Things start great. Listen to how Ken Hughes sums this up. He says, It all began so well but ended so poorly. Of the 600,000 men, of course that's just an estimate of just the men, that doesn't include the women and the children that were part of this exodus, only two over the age of 20 ever got to the promised land. And that was 40 years later. A little debate over how long it would have taken them to actually get from Egypt to the promised land. Some people would say it could take them 40 days to get there. Some a few months but not a great amount of time, 40 years later before they set foot in the Promised Land. The rest fell, disappointed corpses in the desert. The grand and terrible lesson of Israel's history is that it is possible to begin well and end poorly. And that's the lesson that the writer of Hebrews is trying to bring to those who have begun the race. We began with Christ. We've experienced this relationship there's excitement in our hearts but now they've fallen on hard times there's this delay that's taking place there's persecution they're suffering the loss life isn't convenient it's not fun anymore they're not even in fellowship with each other sometimes it just it's a church falling to pieces because of a lack of faith and the warning here is you know what happened to them could be happening to you right now you began well but don't conclude that because you began well, you automatically will finish well. That's the warning here. If you've been in Christianity for very long, you probably know people, if you've not been in this season of your own life, that began amazingly well. Got saved, ticker-tape parade, fireworks and noise, incredible rescue, jumped into the church made an impact, served heroically, told their testimony, which just blew everybody's mind, you could never hear it enough, of how God did this and what their life was like before Christ and this and this and this and this. this. Only for some, not for all, but for some to enter into this decline, these years of decline, where their life just began to become much more nominal, much more average, much more just getting by, maybe maybe not even involved as much in the kingdom of God being built, maybe not living on the edge, maybe not. Remember before you got saved, and you know everybody tells these testimony. I got saved, and I was there every time the church doors were opened. How time you heard that said? I mean, yeah, <laughs> the people who joke about yeah women's meetings. I'm, you know, I'm coming down. I'm repenting about PMS and stuff, and I don't even have it. You know, I'm, I'm just responding to God over everything in my life. And yet some of those folks, where are they? Where are they now? Years later. See, this this book is not about, and genuine faith is not about fireworks in the beginning followed by barely an amber burning at the end of the race. If If the same God who is the source of faith in our lives has given us faith in the beginning, then it ought to be present in the middle and it ought to be present in the end. And it ought to be bearing the signature of God all along the way. If it begins to look like something different as it moves along and it begins to diminish in its effectiveness and sin begins to flood the ship, you have grounds to question whether what you had in the beginning really was God's given faith. And this book is all over that issue. And it doesn't treat it casually. verse 16 through verse 19, we get a little bit of of what Ken Hughes calls the pathology of a hard heart. We follow a certain path, the activity of sin. Yeah, that's fine, man. Thank you. You can give me that. Thank you, buddy. The uh, the pathology of of getting a hard heart. At some point in our lives, you can move from a place of of belief in a certain condition to a life that looks like thing The wheels have come off of this thing, and it's falling apart. Listen to the words here in verse 16. For who were those who heard, they heard, and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned and whose bodies fell in the wilderness? To whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Now what you get here in this little passage is this picture of what does unbelief grow up into later on in life. And, and look what gets listed out here. Elements of sin, provoking, not following, rebelling against. Listen now, how Ken Hughes says this. This is what we deduce from these accounts in Exodus 17 and Numbers 20 is that the hardening that took place in the wilderness was rooted in unbelief this group became hardened the depth of their defective belief produced one other subsidiary characteristic contempt and irreverence hence all the railing against god and his faithful servants Thus we understand that the pathology of a hard heart originates in unbelief. Can everybody underline that? The pathology of a hard heart originates in something as simple as simple unbelief that spawns a hardened contempt, which in turn shows itself in distinct behavioral patterns, namely negativism, grumbling, quarreling, and disobedience. Now, if you want to do this, is a great covenant group exercise here. If you simply were to analyze the content of your life and the categories of your life to find is there negativism, grumbling, quarreling, and disobedience. If you find those elements in your life, then what you are looking at is the leaves on a tree that are rooted in unbelief. Unbelief has given birth to those things in your life. See, can you follow the example? Can you follow why? I can't stand here today and be believing God and seeing God and knowing His activity in my life and holding on to promises about the future and at the same time be complaining and be negative in my outlook. That's not possible. Now, now what, what exactly is this word unbelief? Well, unbelief is just not believing God. That's what unbelief is. It's when I'm not believing God. And it has nice faces on it, doesn't it? I'm not believing God. I'm right now believing in my very difficult and challenging, and I'm sure you understand, circumstances. I have a huge amount of faith that these circumstances are going to be my undoing. That the path of life for me that I should be believing is ordained by God within the sovereign provision of God being directed by a powerful God who loves me is at some point going to be derailed by these horrible circumstances that are going on in my life right now. And it may just sound like, oh, I'm just, I'm just so worried. We'll put an ugly face on it because in the moment that I am so worried about something that all of us would probably understand right along with you, I am not believing god and whatever it slips into that category whether it's economic circumstances job-related issues whether it's a habit of sin in your own life that doesn't seem to want to go away cooperatively or whether it's the sin of others and the people you're surrounded by that sure well i can do the right thing but what if they don't do the right thing well okay what are you believing in that moment I'm believing that they're greater than God in my life. I'm believing that the outcome of my life is going to be so controlled by them that I can't be happy about this right now. Does that sound like any of our experience? See, in this moment, I am, I am holding the seed of unbelief in my heart. And, and what this entire section that we're reading about is intended to do is to scare the daylights out of you. If you have the seed of unbelief in your life. And you may just think it's a seed right now. But you are are holding in your heart an atomic warhead. That is capable of hardening you beyond repair. And this verse is actually intended to scare you. Warning. Don't give in to unbelief. It leads down a path to hardness of heart. There's some here this morning that need to feel this warning. You need to feel it. You need to become very uncomfortable with it. It needs to mess with your theology in a way that makes you get some ants in your pants and get you moving. Because there are some of you who need to hear God say this to you if you stay here one minute longer. You are beyond repair. See, there are warnings in Scripture. I put a couple of highlights here because Hebrews is so big on highlighting these warnings. And I'm just going to skim these. Please go back and read them carefully. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must, we must, I'm an option to be nice if you would, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. That's a warning. We must, the writer including himself, we must pay much closer attention lest we drift away. He is capable of drifting away. You and I are capable of drifting away. Hebrews chapter 6. I won't read that passage. Go back and read it. There is a severe warning in verse 6. If they then fall away. If they fall away. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. See to it, right? And this is right in the lap of responsibility. The admonitions are telling you, do something about what you're hearing. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That's a brain twister, isn't it? See to it. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Now listen, let's not decontextualize this. I don't want to preach all these verses because I don't have enough time to do what I have in front of us anyway. But Hebrews chapter 12 is in the midst of God as a father disciplining his sons. These are not verses addressing reprobates who don't even know how to spell God. These are people who are being dealt with as sons who are receiving these warnings in their lives. Verse 16 in Hebrews 12 that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know, this this is a sobering and frightening verse, for you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. I've warned us about this before. Too many of us think that we hold the purse strings on repentance. We'll repent when we get around to it. I'm not done with this area of sin in my life. I'm not ready to change as though you always have access to repenting whenever it is you feel like. This verse informs us otherwise. This passage informs us otherwise. The pathology of unbelief in that moment leads to hardness. What makes you think? It leads to softness. What makes you think that continuing any longer in unbelief in that category is going to bring you to a day that you want to repent? Remember Hebrews 4 verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. These are sobering warnings. Let me me make two comments here. You guys are going to get an overload of theology today. Two fatal flaws in applying these warnings. One, these warnings mean that one can lose his salvation and that finishing the course is dependent on you. Your determination, your faithfulness, and your efforts. And the temptation when you come across a warning passage that thrusts responsibility into your lap is to detach yourself from the rest of the Bible and to therefore make salvation all about you. It's a fatal flaw. It will mess up your Christianity all over the place because what it does is it removes your ability to honor Hebrews 12. And that's the second point. Here, I'm going to skip the first and I'll come back to it. This runs contrary to the purpose of Hebrews. If you become the focal point, then it's awful difficult to make Christ the focal point. If your effort and your actions are really what causes you to finish the course... Well, then it's very hard for you to receive the admonition to keep your eyes on Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, to consider him as this entire book is about considering him. Let's not change the book now and make it all about us. So that's a fatal mistake. But another reason why that's a fatal mistake, the first point, is to begin to consider that these warnings inform me that I could lose my salvation. This obviously works against an incredible amount of biblical teaching concerning the perseverance of the saints or as some people have labeled it eternal security. I'll tell you right now, I actually I don't care for that label eternal security because it has too much baggage in churches that don't do a good job theologically and create an idea that, you know, once saved, always saved. There's too much baggage in that. So can you adopt a new word and study that area of theology differently? It's the perseverance of the saints. That one who is saved perseveres to the end and stands before God. Because you'll end up not being able to use this part of your Bible. If you're an eternal securist who uses this inappropriately, you have to just throw this part of the Bible away. And it's very hard to do that, as I'll show you in just a second. Reasons to believe we'll be saved to the end. And these are just some that popped in my head real quick. I'm not going to unfold them at all. The doctrine of election is a reason to believe that we'll be saved to the end. We came into Christ by his doing. We'll remain in Christ by his doing. Those whom he calls, he justifies. Those whom he justifies, he glorifies. And he's going to bring us all the way through this process, faithful to the end. Romans 9, it doesn't depend on human exertion, but on God who has mercy. And so that's why I believe that we will make it firm to the end. The covenant that cannot fail. Remember, we studied this two weeks ago. We took over an hour to look at that carefully. God swore by himself. He didn't swear by you. He didn't allow any of us to enter the covenant with him. He didn't allow our weakness and sin to be something that would spoil the covenant. So from God's vantage point, he will complete what he's begun because he's sworn by himself. Therefore, I I can't embrace the idea that I could really be saved and regenerated by God and lose something along the way. I can't believe that because of the eternal life of regeneration. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. You have some real problems with having eternal life that comes to an end, with defining never perishing as yet perishing. You have some real problems there. You have some real problems with what 1 Peter talks about. We have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed, which is the living and abiding Word of God. So the thing that's in you that's brought you new life is the Word of God. Tell me how that perishes. The Bible never portrays it as perishing. And in you, it cannot perish. The pledge, the down payment of God. That God has given us a pledge. In other words, he's come to our life and he has saved us and he's given us a down payment that he's going to complete the deal. The completing of the deal is the glorification that we will receive later. Now, what's interesting here is unlike buying a house, when you go and you talk to the owner and you go and you tour, oh, we love the house. We're looking at a couple others, but we love this house. Well, if you want it, you're going to have to, okay, well, yeah, we do want it. We put down $10,000 on it, but the next day your realtor shows you a house you love more. Oh, what do you do? Well, if you got a lot of money, you walk away from the ten thousand dollars. Another person keeps it, and you go buy the other house you really wanted. That's not the down payment arrangement God made with us. He didn't pledge something; he pledged himself. You have received the Holy Spirit as the down payment. So, if you will, the Godhead said, "Here, we're going to put the Holy Spirit in the people of God." Now, you tell me: Is God coming back to complete the transaction? See, he pledged himself. You know, I have the Holy Spirit. If I'm really saved, God is going to glorify this one. Because he's not going to abandon the Spirit of God who is in me. He cannot. Second and last point. These are not exhaustive. I just a few things that came to mind. Reason why I believe that you're not going to lose your salvation. God's sovereign will is greater than man's quote free will. I don't have time to unpack this. I would love to. At the end of the day, guys, we need to to reassess how we use these ideas. Well, man has a free will. And we say that as though it's the ultimate in the universe. Well, God would like to do a whole lot of things, but you know man has a free will. All right, now, anybody comfortable here that at the end of the day, the universe was governed by man's free will? Is anybody really comfortable with that idea? Is anybody really, if you feel that way, and I'm sure there are some who do, Has anybody really thought through how free something is free in a universe governed by sin and God? How free do you really think your will is? It calls you enslaved to sin. Well, that doesn't sound real free to me. And does free mean that God needs to keep his hands off? He can't influence, bend your arm at all. You must come to a decision all your own. Does anybody believe that's the rules God has to play by? No, I believe in a God who could grab you by the arm and twist your arm until you said uncle. Oh, you said uncle. Sure you did. And you wanted to say uncle. You are passionate about saying uncle. (laughs) Well, if you want to call that free, I'm with you. (laughs) The reason why any of us believe is because God does something to us to bring us to that place of belief and I, I have more respect and this is the way we are as a church in glorifying the sovereign will of god than we do in magnifying the free will of man because that's just what the bible does We look at this passage in Hebrews 7 god saves to the uttermost he completes what he begins that's what that verb that word in the language means So, for all these reasons, I do not believe one can lose their salvation. Now, here's fatal flaw number two. Because I believe you can't lose your salvation, these warnings don't apply to me. Right? I mean, that's where the mind goes next. These things, you know, I I can't lose my salvation. I'm, you know, God started it. It's going to be completed. So, there's no danger here. This is where... We need to let the Bible say what it says and not impose our, our human limitations on the Bible. Because this verse is speaking. This section in Hebrews 3, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, is speaking to us. Now, it may include unbelievers in its context as well, but it is speaking to us. Look in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son and we are his house. The writer includes himself. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Some translations say firm to the end. We, that's us. And then in verse 12, take care brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. We're not speaking about reprobate people. We're not speaking necessarily. They could be included. But this certainly does not allow the believer to say, this verse is not for me. Charles Spurgeon said, this message is not addressed to strangers far away, but to brethren. Paul, he believes Paul wrote this. Paul wrote it to the Hebrews, who were his brethren according to the flesh. He also writes it to all of us who are believers in Christ. And we ought to receive this word with all the greater intensity of attention because he writes it to us as his brethren. The term applies to all who are brethren in Christ. Really so. Those who are quickened by the one Spirit made children of the one Father and going to the one heavenly home. So we need to sit up and take notice about these warnings. Now, what is the correct application for these warnings? Well, First, let me see if I can do this quickly. To the unsaved. If you're here this morning, and there was a word that that was given earlier about... About running to Christ. You find yourself here this morning and, and you you question your relationship with God. You're not sure you have a relationship with God, not sure you're saved. Well, then what what do I do with these warnings? Look in Hebrews 3, verse, verse 19. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard, they did hear it, did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who believed. This knowledge did not benefit them. Today, we live in a world where there's a, a cultural Christianity among us in the neighborhoods where we live in the community that we're a part of where the they great huge critical mistake is being made of assuming that having knowledge is the same as having faith it's not the same you can know all about jesus christ you can know his story you can you can tell the nativity story you can tell the easter story and several points in between You can be familiar with those things, but if it it is not united with biblical faith, biblical believing, it doesn't profit you at all. You do realize there will be people in hell who knew a lot. And maybe we're okay with a lot of information about God, about Jesus Christ. It's not the same as having biblical faith. Biblical faith, biblical believing involves concepts like trust and following it involves an active posture of a life consumed and touched by god it does not merely involve intellectual assent, while my life lives and exists in a different category untouched by what is held up here this is not like you happen to be traveling somewhere and pick up the uh, boston globe and read about the local hockey team score Oh, you're aware of that, but please tell me how it's affecting you once you get on the plane and return home. You're not losing any sleep over that. You don't come home and your wife say, Honey, I I can't sleep. The Bruins lost. I mean, I'm just so upset. It doesn't affect you, does it? Weigh the effect of what you believe. That's where you'll find whether your faith has reality to it. How does it affect you? In the Bible, we're affected by trusting and following. Following is a good word for Christianity. Luke 9, Jesus says... He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Christianity involves dethroning of me. At some point, I turn in my badge and I'm not in charge of anything anymore. And take up his cross daily and follow me. This is a perseverance word, isn't it? Different than I began with fireworks and I'm once saved, always saved. Follow me says, where are you right now? And if your faith was genuine in the beginning, then today you are following him. For whoever would save his life will lose it. This is about salvation. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Now, I could ask the question today, are you a Christian? and that word has so much baggage attached to it and definitions by different people that mean different things, that you might not be able to really get an answer to that question. But if I were to ask you the question, are you following Jesus Christ? That might be a better question. That might be a better definer of, of where we are. Are you, are you following Him, and in doing so, are you abandoning all other means to God? You realize that 's what Jesus proclaimed He was the way, the truth and the life well i I, I think I think he 's one way of many ways. I think there 's a lot of different religions. I saw a guy prominent Christian speaker trying to explain why he doesn 't condemn the Muslims and um, people of different faiths you know that 's what they it 's what they believe it 's not my place to condemn no it 's not your place to be the judge, but it is your place. To own something with clarity that Jesus has already said. To follow him is to abandon to abandon the idea that there are other paths. You have a God who came and said, I'm the only way. Well, I don't believe that. Then you're not following him. Does that make sense? You're not in his path. You are not in agreement with him to believe that there's all these other ways. See, this is why much of Christianity doesn't do evangelism. Because there's no sense of urgency. They're not owned by the concept that if you're not on the path to life, you're going to face this God in judgment forever. The only path that leads to life runs right through Jesus Christ. So where he goes, I go. Following him is is being conformed to his image. Is that occurring in your life as you assess your life? Is there character transformation that's taking place in your life? christianity doesn't doesn't find a good definition and expression by the the overweight loud proud captain of the armchair six pack remote control driving hasn't changed in years but but doesn't curse on church property individual that guy's not defining Christianity, oh but he knows something he knows something about how to manipulate behavior. Listen, Christianity wrecks your world. It gets into the heart of who you are and it messes with every fiber of your being. And if it's not doing that, you have very good grounds to question. Am I really a Christian? Have I really believed? Am I being conformed to a God who calls me as his follower to forgive my enemies? We have a problem forgiving people that are related to us. When we're soaked in bitterness and racism and bigotry, running around like it's okay just to have feelings against somebody because their skin color, their cultural ideas are different than ours, and we get our back all up, we got slang terms for them, we can join right in with everybody. Show me the conformity to the image of Christ in that that's not that's not faith that's not real belief listen there's an image of Jesus that, that has so escaped and it is escaping modern Christianity being conformed to a, to a Jesus Christ who was not a mamby pamby wimpy individual who was nice to everyone okay with everything Jesus Christ was not for a moment soft on sin he could encounter the woman being caught in adultery, who's about to be stoned to death. And what does he do? He lets her off. Well, see? He lets her off. And then he turns and says, What to her? Go and don't do this again. Oh, well, Jesus, you know, take it easy. I mean, I thought you were just kind of really gracious, tolerating. Hey, every moment, remember this, every moment you encounter Jesus being patient with somebody's sin and being kind with their sin, it is not Him tolerating their sin. Remember, He is a few steps away of loading that sin on His back and going to the cross on it. He's not tolerating it. He is about to punish it fully in Himself. There's no toleration for sin taking place in the Son of God. So please, erase these effeminate views of Jesus Christ. Like He just accepted everybody and He accepted everybody's belief. I love the idea that people can... can the same people who can encourage us just to be accepting of everybody, can jump on board with how the Bible describes Jesus relating to the Pharisees. Do you see how he did that? Somebody show me how tolerant he was of the Pharisees' religion. They had a religion. They believed some things. Was Jesus okay with their religion? He stomped all over it. He wasn't kind in his comments to the Jews who would not believe when he turned and told them, you're of your father the devil. That's why you won't believe. See, when you get conformed to the image of Christ, this is the image of Christ. This is what's taking place. If you're here today and you're not sure you're saved, here the encouragement would be God's promises of salvation, here's the warning, does not come to those who don't believe, believe biblically. That's the warning. Please don't think that some gracious favor or future promise of God is any of ours without belief in what He says. What about those of us who are believers? To the saved, if you want to endure to the end, you must, you must appropriately respond to these warnings. And I'm going to unpack why I say that. Question these verses here about holding fast. Do not harden your hearts. Be careful lest there be an evil, unbelieving heart. We share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Do these verses teach that people will fall away? Or does it call them to responsibility which will keep all true believers from falling away? Now, can you you follow this with me for a moment? I'll take a moment to try and explain it. But there's genuineness in these warnings. These warnings are meant to touch the life of a believer. Please don't dismiss them. What they're not intended to do is to awaken insecurity in us as though, well, I don't know how well I'm doing today is whether I'm saved. They're not intended to do that. But they do call for self-examination. Louis Burkhoff said this well. There are warnings against apostasy which would seem to be quite uncalled for if the believer could not fall away. But these warnings regard the whole matter from the side of man and are seriously meant. This is the human responsibility dynamic. They prompt self-examination and are instrumental in keeping believers in the way of perseverance. They're instrumental. They do not prove that any of the address will apostatize but simply that the use of means is necessary to prevent them from committing this sin this is a use of a means these warnings are a means of perseverance these warnings are a means of faith that is flirting with unbelief getting a nudge from god to get away from that and move on that's what these warnings accomplish They are a means. God uses means. One of the things that messes more people up in trying to embrace the sovereignty of God is ignoring the fact that God uses means to accomplish His sovereign will. If you you extract and separate those two things, you get very confused about this theology. Remember Jesus encountering Peter? He says, Peter, Satan has demanded this permission to sift you As wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. You read that verse. What are the implications of what he just said? Could Peter's faith fail? Peter, the elect of God, we know he's a believer. Given faith by God, could his faith fail? If it could not, why does Jesus bother to pray for it? Why doesn't he just respond with saying, Peter, Satan's going to take his best shot at you. But you're the elect, pal. Don't worry about it. You'll be just fine. The Son of God is prompted to pray. Because the prayer of the Son of God is a means of his faith not failing. Do you understand? Could his faith fail is a different question than will his faith fail? Could his faith fail? I have to say yes. Will it fail? I have to say no, it will not. Why? Because God has chosen a means of protecting it. These warnings, like Jesus praying for us and for Peter, are a means of God protecting the faith in us. And if you dismiss them, you dismiss the means by which your faith perseveres. In the same way that you, nobody here, if I had an altar call and say, everybody who wants to come up and sign and ask Jesus to stop praying for them, y'all come on up. I mean, come on. I mean, God made a covenant and he swore by himself. Listen, right? I mean, hey, none of us can fall out of the hand of God. He's sovereign. Y'all come on up if you want Jesus to stop praying for you. And nobody sign on for that deal, right? Listen, we can't sign on either for dismissing us from these warnings. These warnings are intended to be real. Now this this creates theological argument within ourselves. What well, what if I, in verse 12, you know, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God? Well, that doesn't fit my theology. I don't think I can fall away from the living God. So I just dismiss that. You make a huge mistake. Take heed, brethren. Well what if I won't take heed? What if I won't guard my heart? I just won't do that. I refuse. I quit. I won't cooperate. Well, that says something. A little statement below that question. Genuine saving faith would want to guard my heart. If it's genuine saving faith in me, it wants to cooperate with God. Though it may have moments of weakness. This is where the blurriness comes in. Are we talking about a moment where I don't want to? Or are we talking about I don't want to? We're talking about a Christian who's on the field of battle, sword in hand, shield in hand, clanging swords, fighting back, beating on the enemy, taking shots, getting exhausted, blood and sweat dripping out of who he is. And, And all of a sudden the enemy rallies his forces and three come against him all at once in a season of his life and clang, 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 and he's beat to the ground and gets his arm hacked off, drops his, sword, his shield, holds up a sword, gets hit in the head, falls to the ground, appearing to be dead, appearing to be off the battlefield, no longer engaged. But he lays on the ground, one eye open, and he looks at the battle that's raging all around him. And in that moment, he wonders, do I even want to get up? Do I want to fight any more? I'm just going to lay here as though I'm dead. In that moment, if you take a snapshot of that guy, he looks like he won't cooperate. But what about his life? Is that what he looks like over his life? If we keep watching this guy, do we find him moments later having a a reviving of strength in his heart, beaten, torn up, one eye open, looking to see his comrades being beaten brutally by his enemy? something rises up in his heart and he staggers back up to his feet and he stands again and he engages the battle again. Now listen, if you take a snapshot of that guy, that guy, quote, lost his salvation, didn't he? But if you look over the course of his life, does that characterize his faith? Now if it does characterize his faith, you have a very different issue on your hands. Oh, but he he looked like he started well. Finished poorly. Great in the beginning, but nothing later. Well, remember the Bible addresses that issue. You know, they went out from among us because they never were of us. Jesus, didn't we do these great things in your name? Away from me. I never knew you. Not, ah, I knew you for a while when you were doing those great things, and then I stopped knowing you. The Bible doesn't say that. I never. New you. They are not all Israel who have descended from Israel. Oh, they're all hanging out with Israel. They're all dressed like Israel, and they're all behaving like Israel. But they're not all Israel who have descended from Israel. There's a remnant chosen by grace. Now put this thought in your outline. If you've not received the saving faith of God, then you won't guard your heart. You won't. You won't cooperate with God. Guard your heart from unbelief, you won't do it if you've not received the saving faith of God. If you have received the saving faith of God, then you must guard your heart. Now please notice, I did not put there, you will guard your heart. Because that's not what the warnings say. Because the warnings are written to men. They're not written to God. This is not a warning about God's sovereignty. This is not about whether God will complete what He's begun. This is a warning concerning the means through which God will finish His sovereign will. And so you and I need to hear it come to us. That's why the language here in Hebrews 2 is we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. We must. If you have the saving faith of God in you, That faith wants to cooperate with God. You must cooperate with God. That's the admonition you must hear. Real warnings, these are real warnings that call for a real response. Let me read a couple of things to you. We're going to close. These warnings, Matt, you can go ahead and come back up. These warnings, read this little paragraph with me. These warnings are presented to me as real warnings. And it is in my cooperation with them that is God's ordained means for His work of salvation to continue to the end. I am to treat these warnings as real so that they produce in me the human response that will see the continuation of inheriting the promises of God. When you face the temptation to give in to further unbelief, to sin's pleasures... And to once again say no to responding to God, you should be concerned that you are approaching the point of no return. That's what these warnings tell you. You should feel that way. It should register in you. There should be a sense of chill that goes up your spine that you may be about to act one more time for the last time in that category and not be frivolously thinking, well, God is God. And I can cooperate with unbelief one more time. I'm going to be fine. These warnings don't allow you to say that. God has made them sound so vicious that they motivate you to stay away from that issue. Hebrews chapter 6 is a very theologically challenging little chapter. It's got some real edges on it. It basically says if you fall away, it's impossible for you to be saved again. That's a theological tongue twister. If you do have a theology that you can fall away, you can be lost by losing your salvation. You should be scared to stink in death by that. But if you don't have a theology that you can lose your salvation, that warning is written to you. You should be scared to stink in death by it. Because it's intended to do that. I can't get away from Hebrews 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said. He clarifies this very well. If Christians can fall away and cease to be Christians, they cannot be renewed again to repentance. But, says one, you say they cannot fall away. What is the use of putting this if in, like a bugbear to frighten children, or like a ghost that can have no existence? My learned friend, who art thou that repliest against God? If God has put it in, he has put it in for wise reasons and for excellent purposes. Let me show you why. First, O oh Christian, it is put in to keep thee from falling away. God preserves his children from falling away, but he keeps them by the use of means. And one of these is the terrors of the law, showing them what would happen if they were to fall away. There is a deep precipice. What is the best way to keep anyone from going down there? Why, to tell them that if he did, he would inevitably be dashed to pieces. In some old castle, there is a deep cellar where there is a vast amount of fixed air and gas, which would kill anybody who went down. What does the guide say? If you go down, you will never come up alive. Who thinks of going down? The very fact of the guide telling us what the consequences would be keeps us from it. So God says, My child, if you fall over this precipice, you will be dashed to pieces. What does the child do? He says, Father, keep me. Hold thou me up, and I shall be safe. It leads the believer to greater dependence on God, to a holy fear and caution. Take care then, Christian, for this is a caution. Let's stand up together. allow the lord a moment of access to your own hearts let these warnings find their way into whatever category of unbelief is being harbored in your heart where do you find yourself not believing god where are you not trusting him Listen carefully, dear saint of God. Listen carefully. The pathology of unbelief leads to hardness. Do not think for a moment you may remain on that path for another second and be safe from a hardness to which there is no remedy. That's what these verses say. I believe what a person who needs to hear these warnings the most... It's a person who thinks he can delay one more second in unbelief. One more second. One more moment. One more time to say no to God. Just one more. One more delaying in my embracing of sin and its pleasures. Just, just one more. Just, I don't intend this to be going on forever. Just, a, just another time. Just to the end of the month. You desperately need to hear a warning that is in these passages. The Christian who has become nominal in his life and knows it. You began great, but your years following have been filled with nominal Christianity, a nominal walk, a nominal passion, a blending and a mixture of unbelief and belief, needs to hear these warnings. You are flirting. With a path that could lead you to a hardness from which there is no return. The person here this morning waiting to get right with God. you're not sure you're a believer, but you're waiting. You like what you hear about Christ and something in your heart tells you it's right. And you think at one point, yeah, I think at one point I'd like to do that. To delay is a foolish decision on your part. If in this moment you sense the warmth of God the Bible's encouragement to you is to run towards that warmth with all that's in you for that warmth could tomorrow turn to coldness which would no longer attract you and you would no longer want it. And your delay would be the most foolish thing that's ever cost you in your life. If you're here this morning and you've Cease to pay careful attention in your life. We must, Hebrews says, we must pay careful attention to what we have heard. Lest we drift away from it. If you are here and your Christianity has become vague and, and it lacks eager listening to God, and you're comfortable with that, Please hear these warnings. We must pay much closer attention lest we drift away. You are in danger of drifting away. If your Bible lies dormant on a shelf, if your busy life has consumed your time and attention to where you don't pay careful attention, you are in danger of drifting And becoming more hardened, less obedient, less responsive, and perhaps no longer desiring at all. I'd like to do this because I'd like for you to have a little bit of a landmark here this morning. If you find yourself this morning, you have been flirting with, harboring, keeping a spare bedroom for unbelief in your life. I want to ask you to come forward here because you're going to to kick unbelief out this morning. You're going to tell unbelief to pack its bags and you're going to go to war against unbelief as perhaps the most damaging enemy that could ever darken your doors because unbelief is the seed of hardness and hardness will remove everything that you hold dear about your Savior and about your life and what He's given you. So if you're here this morning... And unbelief is operating in a healthy manner in a category of your life. I want you to come forward. I want you to confess it to God. I want you to own the ugliness of it. I want you to tell God, God, I have not been believing you. I have not been believing you. I've been believing this instead. I've been believing in this person's tenacity in my life. I've been believing in my circumstances. I've been believing in the power of sin that's in me that I could never change. I've been believing in my own goodness. I'm believing in my own self-sufficiency that I don't need you, therefore I don't pay attention to you. Say it like it really is so it sounds as ugly as it really is. And it gives you a heart to flee from these things. As Matt leads us in this song, pronounce your own holy war against unbelief. Find it in the categories where it exists. A word that was given earlier, and this may be a word for some parents here. Some lady who've been praying this week got this impression. For parents here this morning, there is coming a day when all the prodigals will come home. With as big as your heart is for your children, the Father's heart is greater. you stop believing that God would save your children, just you stop believing that caught an unbelief for your marriage can't get any better it's just it's just the way it's going to be Listen, unbelief can be in very tolerant categories let's not tolerate it it will spread throughout your life and it will turn your soft life into rock hardness against the work of god anybody else need to come this morning If you feel prompted by the Lord and you feel led to maybe come pray for anyone who is up here, uh, please do that. Please try not to dominate what they're hearing from God. Just try to get in agreement with what they're hearing from the Lord and pray for them. Let's, Let's minister to the Lord for a moment.
1: Oh, great God. Highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart. Oh, Lord.
0: not our ways. Lord, as we read these verses, contemplated these verses, listened to them preached, Lord, they don't always have the flavoring and sound of good news. Lord, what we just sang, these words, Lord, is what you have just done for us. Lord, you have rescued us this morning from danger by Your loving, gracious warnings that we needed to be sobered by. Lord, what is on the other side of this coin of our own fear and concern and dread that should drive us near to You is a land of faith where we walk and trust in trusting You rather than doubting You. Lord, this morning what you have chosen to do in our midst is to nudge our faith away from unbelief and toward you. Oh, God, we are so thankful for your care for us to do that. Lord, would you teach us now, particularly those who have responded here this morning, teach us to deal with these issues at the heart of these issues. Or may we not find ourselves this week simply trimming the bushes of negativism and complaining and grumbling. Lord, You've not just called us to be people who don't complain or people who don't grumble. You've called us to be people who believe something. That's why we don't complain. That's why we don't grumble. So Lord, awaken in our hearts this week fresh faith to consider Him to set our focus on Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. Lord, thank You a holy nudge a moment of rescue in Jesus name Amen